0: Welcome to Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell, and you're listening to Episode 3, Season 4. For today's episode, we're stepping away from the Voices of H. Kai series and looking at the Marine Corps' Force Design 2030. And at first for the show, we have three guests, all leaders from Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, or 1 2. 1 2 is the Marine Corps' Infantry Battalion Experiment or IBEX unit on the East Coast. The IBEX stands at the center of the Force Design 2030 initiatives, and with all the debate surrounding Force Design, I'm especially excited to share this conversation. I hope it generates fruitful discussion and debate on both the future of Marine Corps Infantry and Force Design 2030 more generally. Our guests are Captain Devin Sanderfield, the Alpha-12 Commanding Officer, Gunnery Sergeant Nathaniel Baker, the Platoon Sergeant of 3rd Platoon, and 1st Lieutenant Michael Carrero, the Platoon Commander of 2nd Platoon. We could spend a good while sharing all the details of the impressive bios of these gentlemen, but in the interest of time, I'll give abbreviated versions. Captain Sanderfield enlisted in the Marine Corps in October 2006, became a rifleman, and served in Company L 3rd Battalion 4th Marines. He deployed with the battalion to hit Iraq in 2008 and now Zad, Afghanistan in 2009. He became a Marine officer in 2013 and an infantry officer in 2014, his first assignment being a platoon commander in 2nd Battalion 3rd Marines. In this capacity, he supported RIMPAC 2016 and then deployed to Okinawa, Japan, as part of the unit deployment program from 2016 to 2017. Captain Sanderfield next served three years at the basic school as an instructor and staff platoon commander, and in 2020-2021, he attended the Expeditionary Warfare School and graduated with distinction. He assumed command of Alpha-1-2 in May 2021. Gunny Baker enlisted in the Marine Corps in July 2002, became a rifleman, and was assigned to Company L, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines. In 2003, he took part in the march up to Baghdad and fought in the Battle of Nazaria. After returning from Operation Iraqi Freedom, Gunny Baker deployed to Kabul, Afghanistan in October 2003, and then again in July 2004. Upon returning home, he attended the Infantry Squad Leaders course, and in April 2005, deployed to Al-Qaim, Iraq as a squad leader. In July 2006, he ended his active duty service. In October 2007, he rejoined the Marine Corps and was assigned to 2nd Battalion 9th Marines and deployed to Ramadi, Iraq in 2008 and then to Marja and Sangin, in Afghanistan in 2010-2011. For the next few years, he executed recruiting duty with Recruiting Station New Jersey and then served with 2nd Battalion 5th Marines, deploying twice with the 31st Marine Expeditionary Unit. Following his time with the battalion, Gunny Baker executed orders to Marine Corps Recruit Depot, Parris Island. He joined alpha One Two and 3rd Platoon in 2021. And last but not least, 1st Lieutenant Carrero, commissioned into the Marine Corps in December 2019, graduated the basic school in November 2020, and the infantry officer course in April 2021. He joined Alpha-1-2 soon after. His Marines have acted as a critical testbed to provide feedback and refinement on the future of Marine infantry, small UAS, and electronic warfare. The usual disclaimers for active duty guests apply. The views of our guests today are strictly their own and don't reflect the views of their battalion, U.S. Marine Corps, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Now, let's get to our conversation with our three leaders from alpha One Two. Enjoy. Okay, tonight we're joined by three leaders serving with Alpha Company, 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, Captain Devin Sanderfield, the company CO, Gunnery Sergeant Nathaniel Baker, Platoon Sergeant of 3rd Platoon, and 1st Lieutenant Michael Carrero, the Platoon Commander of 2nd Platoon. just made its way to Okinawa, where it's serving as part of the unit deployment program. So it's early their time, about 0730. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me to discuss what you've been up to in Alpha
1: 1-2. Yeah, thanks for having us. Damien, appreciate it. Happy to be here. Good morning.
2: We'll start
0: off with a few general questions and Captain Sanderfield, you can take these or the group can answer them. Would you describe what the infantry battalion experiment, IBEX, is and the fundamental concepts behind it?
2: Yeah, of course. So ultimately, the infantry battalion experiments and an output of the Commandant's Force Design 2030 initiative, which is looking at developing a a more lethal, flexible, and and capable force that's tailored to meet the the security challenges of the future. Uh, One infantry battalion is in each of the three MEFs has been designated as the battalion to become an IBEX unit. And this experiment's been going on for some time with Victor-11 out in Camp Pendleton. We have Victor 1-3 in Hawaii, and then we have ourselves. We have Victor 1-2 designated as the IBEX battalion for 2-MEF for and for 2nd Marine Division. And then within 1-2 itself, we have, we have Alpha Company, who's operating as our IBEX company. Charlie Company is designed in, in a legacy company, so the old traditional construct. And what this has allowed is for the division and McWill to compare these two units over the series of multiple force design exercises over the past 12 months.
0: Alpha Company is the IBEX company. Charlie is the legacy. Is Bravo Company somewhere in between?
2: So Bravo Company initially was going to be a hybrid. And this was out of concerns of being able to man Alpha Company up to to its entire task organization. However, in the last 12 months, Bravo has We've been able to task-organize Bravo almost identical to Alpha Company. So they have the same construct of, of gunnery sergeant, platoon sergeant, staff sergeant, squad leaders, and, and sergeant team leaders very similar to, to Alpha Company.
0: So if we could, I'd like to talk about the structure that Alpha Company has. It's very different than a traditional marine rifle company. One feature of this, as you started to mention, is the required rank of your leader billets. So your fire team leaders are sergeants instead of corporals your squad leaders are staff sergeants instead of sergeants. Your company, Gunny, is now a master sergeant and operations chief, just like what you would find in a weapons company. So what's it been like having this structure, having these additional NCOs and staff NCOs?
2: We certainly have a different structure than what you would typically find in an infantry unit. I think the the amount of experience that we have in our critical small unit leader billets is substantial. As you mentioned Uh, Each one of our platoon sergeants are gunnery sergeants, our squad leaders are staff sergeants, and our team leaders are all sergeants. And then in addition to that, you know, we have a multitude of corporals that serve as members of of each of the fire teams. So just a a ton of experience and a a ton of leadership uh, within our company. And this this increase in maturity, the military and life experience that comes with that has brought significant benefits and has made us a much more capable force. We're ultimately and undeniably a more capable force than a legacy unit that just has less experienced uh, small unit leaders. And you see that. You see that in the ability for them to make decisions in the absence of direct supervision, their ability to develop and facilitate training drastically improved. And, and it isn't necessarily you know because of the rank. It's because of the age and the maturity and the experience. So each one of our Staffs aren't squad leaders, they've already completed their B-billet. Most are PME complete with multiple advanced infantry schools under their belt. So the experience that they've had in those positions, in addition to the time that they've had in the fleet, provides them a depth of knowledge and experience that you just cannot replicate with a first term NCO or, or a sergeant with five or six years experience. And that's not to to minimize our sergeants because we have multiple sergeants within each squad and they're extremely smart and, and extremely capable leading our fire teams. But the other piece, Damon, I think I'd like to address quickly is the significant changes to our headquarters element. And I think this gets less attention than it does in relation to our infantry platoons but has been instrumental to our success over the last 12 months and during our main five very difficult force design exercises. So to touch on it quickly, our company headquarters element structured very similar to what you would generally find in in an infantry battalion. We have a dedicated S2 intelligence section at the company level led by a very capable staff sergeant. We have an organic tactical small UAS, as well as an EWSI team located within the company. We have a logistics section, an S4, we have a communications section, an S6. And then lastly, we have an extremely robust medical capability at the company level. Generally, a traditional rifle company will have one, you know E4 E5 corman at the company level who serves as a senior line Corman, and then one or two corman per platoon. With our construct, we have a medical officer, embedded in the company. We have a Navy Lieutenant. We have an HM1 IDC at the company level. And then we have 18 corpsmen, not only within our headquarters element, but we have four corpsmen within the platoons, which allows them to have one per squad, as well as a, a more senior corpsman that serves uh, kind of at the, at the platoon level. So the inclusion of these, the subject matter experts has allowed us to conduct some very detailed planning, At the company level as well as just command and control the company in in a very distributed manner that's generally separated geographically from the rest of the battalions. A very unique opportunity, I think, for each of us three to be a part of uh, such an exciting unit.
0: So it sounds like the company is stacked as far as experience goes. It has a much wider range of capabilities than your typical rifle company. Have you encountered any challenges as far as the organization or any challenges having so many more NCOs and staff NCOs, or do you really just see this as a net gain across the board?
2: It's definitely a net gain. I think the challenges have been, how do you keep everybody challenged and gainfully employed? Me and Lieutenant Carrera were talking about this the other day about just the difficulty early on of not fully understanding some of the capabilities that our enablers brought, as well as just understanding the depth of, of knowledge and experience that all of our leaders have. And you really just have to do things differently. You, you have to develop training that's more complex, that challenges the entire unit. You have to distribute your forces in training because you just have a multitude of leaders with capabilities. Um, so it's, it's absolutely a net gain, a force multiplier. But it's been some growing pains to ensure that, you know, everybody's gainfully employed throughout the last 12 months. We'll
0: certainly get into some of these growing pains as we go through the conversation. I'd like to ask now, how is the company supposed to carry out Expeditionary Advanced base Operations, EABO? Could you paint us a picture of what this is supposed to look like?
2: I think the IBEX structure, the future infantry force at the company level is uniquely qualified to carry out uh, some of the missions outlined in EABO. So not only do we have, like we mentioned, a large number of small unit leaders with the maturity and experience that's been honed with additional years in the fleet and a swath of advanced schooling, but we also have the, the wide array of enablers at the company level that provide us a, a unique set of capabilities that you generally will find either at the battalion level, but you certainly won't find located within an infantry rifle company. So These capabilities include, like I mentioned, an expanded company level intelligence section which allows us to tie into higher headquarters intelligence apparatus to help build situational awareness. But we're also able to contribute to the maritime domain awareness throughout the application of our robust fleet of tactical small UAS, of our SIEW element that's able to sense and make sense of the operational environment. And then we have our dedicated section of communication specialists, which enable command and control from multiple distributed locations. Uh, And then lastly, with our organic precision fires that provide us our loitering beyond line of sight precision strike capability at the company level. Things that you just generally won't find with a traditional company or battalion, who is also capable, to point out, they're capable of conducting EABO, I think our structure allows us to be uniquely qualified in executing those missions. But I think the the point here I want to make, Damien, is based on a lot of criticism with force design and its approach, you know, all the things that I just outlined do not just make us more capable at carrying out EABO or the EABO mission, but it's we're just more capable of conducting offense and defense of simply locating, closing with, and destroying the enemy. So we're by no means a, a one-trick pony. You know, we're capable of accomplishing missions across the spectrum of conflict in a more effective and efficient manner due to our construct.
0: So, yeah, it sounds like... The company does have this expanded set of capabilities. It's not just capable of doing EABO, but doing traditional missions usually assigned to a rifle company. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the effect of these new rank requirements for certain billets. I imagine there's been grumbling among some of your enlisted leaders. For instance, if I'm a staff sergeant and I've already been a squad leader, say as a corporal or a sergeant, I'm expecting to be a platoon sergeant when I check into Alpha 1-2, but under the new construct, I'm a squad leader again. Similarly, if I'm a gunny and I check in thinking I'm going to be a company gunny, I might be thrown that now I'm a platoon sergeant again. Have you seen any grumbling of this sort in your unit? If so, how have you handled it?
2: I'll touch on this real quick. And I know Gunny Baker and Lieutenant Crow have thoughts on this as well. There's certainly been some of it, I think most of the so-called grumbling, if you will, has probably occurred more at the the sergeant and corporal level. And and I get it. You know, Gunny Baker and I were talking the other day about how we were leading squads as corporals and sergeants. And I and I don't want to at all minimize the capability and professionalism of our of our NCO corps, because ours have been nothing but but pros throughout the process. I think the way that we've attempted to address it is just by by challenging the unit through, through difficult training and ensuring that with the increased amount of leadership that we're providing the time and the ability for small unit leaders to, to lead their units. Because uh, like I mentioned before, you just can't do things the same way that we were previously. Exercises have to be more physically and mentally demanding. We try to conduct a lot of platoon level live fire where the, the company provides the time, resources and intent and the platoon can leverage the leaders at their level to, to complete the training in their in their own unique way, you know, as long as it meets intent or, or training objectives. So I think challenging the unit has been our way to address it. But I know Gunny Baker and uh, Lieutenant Carrero have thoughts
3: on this as well. Yeah, Gunny, you want to you take it first? Yeah, sure, sir. I just think at, at the time when we come together, everybody has to be a pro. So we put aside, uh, we all had feelings of what we thought we would be or what we should be. At the end of the day, I think we all seen the, the bigger mission and the bigger plan that the Marine Corps had. And it's just like the CEO said, we just have to challenge ourselves. We have the unique ability to do a lot more than, than a regular unit would. And we just get our corporals and sergeants, staff sergeants and myself as a gunny, and I include it and just make the just design it to be a little bit harder than what we, norm, what we normally do. And I think that helps us out a lot.
1: Yeah, I think, Gunny, you make a really good point, too. You know, I, I'd say probably initially, we saw more of that grumbling, you know, right out of the gate. When people came into the unit thinking that, you know, Ibex was going to look a certain way or, or really expecting, I guess, to be dragged back down to that rank, you know, for a staff sergeant, you know, like, Hey, this is familiar territory. This is, you know, something I've done before kind of been there, done that. But I think as you know, the, the experiment unfolded, as we, as we got farther in the workup, you know, at least for the squad leaders that I had the privilege of, of leading, you know, they, they began to see that it was, it was really less of like dragging them down. And, you know, I, I've really found uh, the following to be true. And that's if, if, you know, you make a point to bring uh, the billet up to the rank and not the rank down to the billet, you know, you're not only empowering your staff and COs to really eliminate any kind of like coasting or bare minimum mindset for someone who maybe is comfortable in the position uh, that they've been in before. Uh, you know, it also really maximizes the capability of each squad and, and allows us to do more kind of like, you know, Captain Sanderfield was talking about with, you know, really spreading out and increasing the training load and really the reliance on those staff artists. I think when you do it right, you know, people begin to see the reality that this is not just stepping back into a conventional rifle squad leader. It's, it's really something new and
3: different and, and, and that's how it should be. And I would also like to add that I found in my platoon as training progressed, the guys wanted more down to the Lance Corporal, PFC Corporal. Hey, Gunny, what can I do to, you know, make the platoon better? What What kind of school can I go to? Can I go to this school? Can I do that? Like everybody wanted to become better because we realized that, hey, that, you know, we we have to have a, a unique set of skills, so to speak, in order to really, really capture what we're trying to do with this IBEX thing.
0: So this is a question for the group, and that's how much of a challenge has it been to plan, think up, imagine training that's complex enough, engaging enough so that the Marines do feel like they're doing something new or they're doing something that uh really captures their 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 attention and and gets their buy-in you know coming from conventional infantry units uh, i imagine there's a certain sort of training you do with them but you're not doing that here with your company you've got to do more so how has that process been for for you at your particular levels
1: yeah i can i can actually speak to that just a little bit you know i think it's it's important to note that you know just because we are experimenting with this new structure, this new force design, like, you know, it doesn't neglect the, or or doesn't remove the fact that you, you really need to be brilliant at the basics. But that being said, you know, kind of to your point uh, it, it has been challenging to kind of develop consistently, you know, it can't just be a one-off thing, but consistent challenging of the Marines and challenging of, you know, at, at every level down to your, your lowest PFC all the way up to, you know, your gunny platoon started. It's like, how do you continue to, not only create but maintain that level of training uh, so that you don't stalemate. You know, it's like every time you complete a training exercise, it, it kind of shows you not just what you're capable of, but, you know, in the past, but now what you're capable of in the future. And I think, you know, at least at the platoon level, I don't know, I'm interested to hear Gunny Baker's perspective on this, but it's been very challenging to to maintain that, you know,
3: consistently across the span of like 12 months. Yeah, I agree with you, sir. I think how I um, approach it is one, it has to be physically demanding. Right. Like we have to be, you know, tougher, go out farther, a little bit longer than your traditional company. And then two, the the decision points have to be driven down to the lowest level. And I think that's where we make a lot of our money at, because like, you know, we are spread apart. So that sergeant and those two teams are probably a little bit farther than a normal squad would be. And they were forcing those junior leaders to make decisions that maybe normally was was reserved for somebody more senior. And I think that's one of the ways uh, we've captured it.
2: And I think, you know, Damon, to your point at the company level, what what you've really had to examine, or at least I've had to examine, is our risk tolerance. Mm-hmm. And if our traditional risk tolerance at, at with a with a conventional infantry company is probably a whole lot less than when we have the, a robust number of, of staff NCOs and NCOs. But once we started realizing what we were capable of and and the capabilities and limitations of the unit, we really just started to pile on decisions that we were trying to drive decision points through training, vice just conducting uh, a battle drill on a live fire range and things that you would traditionally see on a, on a nine live fire, where it's a a bunch of decision points, uh, whether it's force on force or otherwise we incorporated that into our live fire as well, which attempted to, to push the limits and stack the number of technology that we with that we gave the squads gave them more, decision making ability push them further in the scenario from higher headquarters whether that's their platoon or from that's the company to, to force them to have to make decisions in a conregrated environment against a very capable enemy. so it's really just been a, a challenge for me to become comfortable with the acceptance of risk much higher than than i think i would have otherwise.
0: Sounds like you guys are up to some really exciting stuff. And the enabling factor here is that increase in sergeants, staff, and COs, gunnies, this increase in in leaders. And it makes sense that you've got to keep them highly engaged. You've got to keep them occupied. You've got to keep finding ways to develop, refine their hard and soft skills. And then that that is causing all of you guys to kind of push yourselves beyond your limits with... Like you said, Devin, your, your risk management, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's really neat what, what's, what's happening there. I am curious to know, does the, the shift in leadership billet requirements harm or hinder in any way your, your NCOs and staff NCOs as far as their career progression? If I'm a sergeant, I go to sergeant school, but I've only led a fire team, is that going to harm me in any way as far as you know, staying in the Marine Corps, getting promoted, so on and so forth?
2: I don't think it does. And I think we've, we've put a lot of thought about this at the, at the battalion level because we were concerned about it as well. And we didn't want to put anybody at, at any kind of disadvantage. So the battalion has been working very closely with, with manpower systems to ensure that our, you know, our fitness report evaluations outline the, the Marines participation in IBEX to ensure that as they go up on, on future promotion boards, uh, that they have a fair comparison to their peers in other battalions who may be filling a billet, up, uh, per se, uh, due to the the legacy legacy construct, and and we've seen throughout the workup, you know, several of our sergeants, uh, our one of our staff sergeants just got promoted to gunnery sergeant, so at least up until this point, we have not seen that that hinder their ability, uh, in any way.
3: That's encouraging. So i also like to note that iron sharpens iron. Uh, I think having the multiple NCOs in in the platoon, having the six sergeants, they have to work together and they have to work harder because they're all competing now. We get to see, we really truly get to see like who's at the top, who's at the bottom. And we all pretty much have meat eaters. So those guys work hard each day, you know, when they come to work. So it has created one competition and then two, those two sergeants are working for a staff sergeant. So they're getting groomed throughout, you know, and then from the staff stories, they have me with a little bit more experience who are getting that, you know, grooming from a gun who sees them and interacts with them every day. So I think that's been very helpful when they probably have more of an advantage than your traditional rifle company. Yeah. That's a really good point.
0: I'd like to direct the next few questions to Lieutenant Carrero. When you attended TBS and IOC, you learned about the current Marine rifle platoon and company table of organization. What's the learning curve been like as a platoon commander in Alpha One Two under the new TO? Where do you find yourself having to adapt
1: most? Yeah, it's uh, that's kind of a, <laughs> it's an interesting question, right? It was, it's funny because coming out of the schoolhouse, you know, you're told, uh, you know, hey, you're going to be lucky to have a sergeant, maybe, you know, you might have a staff sergeant, you know, this is kind of, this is what you should expect, and and you will receive, uh, and and when I checked into Victor one too, you know, right out of the gate, like, hey, you're gonna have six sergeants, three staff sergeants, a gunny. We're not doing business the same. You know, two fire teams. It, it it was a little bit like, oh, okay, all right, this is gonna be different. But you know, to kind of speak to your point, I think IOC does a really good job of building an in-depth knowledge of legacy rifle platoon tactics, techniques, procedures. But I also think what they do really well is they stress situations in which you know the, the quote unquote book can't be applied in a cookie cutter fashion. You know, they'll put you in situations where you understand, you know, tactics, techniques, and procedures. But, hey, it doesn't work, and, and what are you going to do with that? I'd say what surprised me the most maybe coming into this new force design uh, really was just how large of a battle space rifle platoons could confidently cover, like how how large of an area I felt confident uh, in influencing as a platoon. You know, the introduction of things like, you know, more organic enablers, tactical UAS electronic warfare assets, you know, a more mature force. I feel like it's really allowed my platoon to stretch its tactical legs, you know, both geographically as well as in like mission capability. You know, the, the types of things that we're doing uh, I think are, are kind of unique. Early on and and you know speaking more of the, the challenging portion of it, I'd say early on and really throughout the entirety of the workup, we executed a lot of, you know, long distance infiltrations across a wide spectrum of environments. You know, from the mountains of West Virginia, uh, all the way to you know the swamps of North Carolina. What really challenged, I'd say, my platoon consistently uh, was breaking the safety blanket uh, of operating under constant communication. I think it's something that we've become uh, comfortable with—the ability to kind of always key out on a radio and, and talk to each other. You know, and we had to we had to get away from that kind of in the face of a peer threat. You know, but that's not a new concept. And we really had to return to our roots of time and and really conditions based tactical control measures as as we moved across these, you know, these different planes. So, you know, it it was a it was a new challenge. It's something that I think we we had some growing pains in at first. People didn't want to do it. But the interesting thing is, is kind of as we began to to move away from it and get more comfortable, like comfortable operating in a calm, degraded environment. It actually enabled us to be more efficient. Um, You know, again, this is nothing new, but the ability to take commander's intent, very deliberate, time and conditions based tactical control measures, and then allowing these staff sergeant squad leaders with their sergeant team leaders to run with it, you know, really made us more efficient. I think as as a war fighting unit. Yeah, I think you know we also had to really refine our SOP for things like sustainability under austere conditions. When we look at the next fight. You know, with a peer adversary, I think it demands that our ability to procure potable pot of water, food, sustain batteries at the squad level, uh, you know, maintain prolonged casualty care. Those kind of things need to become as much of a priority as developing proficiency in in, in weapon systems, you know, uh, and, and that could be a whole nother conversation in and of itself with austere logistics. So I'll digress a little bit. But we really did. You know, I can think of a few instances specifically in which we were kind of put to the test, uh, to see how effectively we could do things as simple as you know, sustaining ourselves with water. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the t- I, I think in light of all that, though you know the TO has changed, but the mission of the Marine rifle platoon really has not. You know, to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire and maneuver. That that still remains. You know, new structure, enablers, weapons—they don't change the end state. You know, ultimately, they just they give us more flexibility both at the platoon and company level and really how we reach that.
0: The next two questions I'll, I'll direct to you, Lieutenant, but I'd, I'd love to hear from the CO and, and the gunny as well. What's it like having Sergeant fireteam leaders, if, if I'm not mistaken, all of them are ISOL graduates, and you know, what difference, if any, have you seen this make in the running, training, or performance of the squads?
1: Plainly put, it's honestly, it, it's been a great asset to the platoon. I think it's important to note that, you know, having these leaders with advanced schooling, it it does a lot more than just increase the tactical prowess of the individual leader filling that billet. When you look at it, when you take the right sergeant with the right schooling and you put them in in the right spot, you know, our ability as a platoon to, to permeate training uh, and capabilities down to the individual riflemen in their teams ha- has been greatly increased. I'd say, you know, holding these billets, has allowed those sergeants to kind of hyper-focus their skills and their and their schooling on making those five Marines and their team as lethal as possible. And it's really had great effects uh, from
3: just what we've seen in my platoon. Yeah, I think we're just more decisive. Everything happens faster. The decisions happen faster. The kill chain has been shrank down a little bit, and the guys just go out and they just execute just a lot faster, a little bit more violent.
0: So if we could... Also talk about the effect of having staff sergeant squad leaders. What differences do you see having a leader of that rank instead of a sergeant as the squad leader?
1: You know, I I think uh, it's a lot like we talked about before Uh, going into this. There was a little bit uh, of maybe a poor taste in some people's mouths, but, you know, what we kind of focused on doing, and I was very I tried to be very intentional about this about two sergeant, like we talked about earlier, was bring that billet up to the rank and and not the rank down to the billet. And you know the, I think the difference really comes in in what Captain Sanderfield talked about earlier on, which is the maturity, the life experience, sure, the schooling, um, but really the maturity, the life experience, the decisiveness that comes with the rank of staff sergeant. You know, I think, it's important to remember that, you know, these are seasoned Marines with the maturity advanced schooling capability to to operate as platoon sergeants, you know, making them squad leaders doesn't remove that element of trust and confidence. I'd say it just, it shifts their focus and and really allows them to focus on being teachers and forward battlefield leaders first and foremost. So, you know, in terms of a difference, I I think it's undeniable. And we've seen that the ability to push squads out further Ah, uh, with less communication, it, 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 it's really had great results. So, know, I'll turn it over to Captain Sanderfield for comments on that. But uh, yeah, und- undeniably, a beneficial shift. I think, from the company perspective,
2: to me, it has it has less to do with the rank. It has less to do with the fact that it's a staff sergeant leading the squad or that it's a sergeant leading the it's the team. It has more to do with with what Lieutenant Carrero and Gunny. Baker mentioned was about the, the experience, the life experience, the military experience that generally comes with being in, in the force a little bit longer. So you have, a, you have a staff and CO by nature of the time he's been in, 10, 11, 12 years, in some cases up to 15 years, that individual's had career enhancing B-billet opportunities. He's had time to reflect on the things he's done right and the things he's done wrong, so are we going to have staff sergeant squad leaders and sergeant team leaders in the future? I don't know. Uh, probably not. I'm not sure that we can afford it, and I'm not sure that we, unless there's a drastic change in our manpower system, I'm just not sure that we can, we can make it happen. Uh, hopefully what, what we take from this, though, is that experience piece. If we're going to go back to having a sergeant, a capable sergeant leading a rifle squad, that's fine. But what we need that sergeant to do, the capabilities and the maturity that we need them to have is going to require that they've been in a little bit longer, that maybe they're a little bit older, and that they've had some advanced schooling that's honed their their skills to allow them to fill the billet in the same way that we've seen our staff and CEOs fill it. Uh, so I just want the the listeners to, to kind of take away from this that We can do this with sergeants and corporals. It doesn't necessarily have to be the staff and and sergeants, but it's gonna, we're gonna have to approach it a little bit differently. We need the time. We need the experience. We need the schooling uh, from the force to ensure that we have uh, the same level of success.
0: Interesting. Lieutenant, you have a larger than typical headquarters element. It includes additional transmission systems operators and intelligence specialists an electronic warfare specialist, a logistics NCO, if I'm not mistaken. What do these capabilities do for a rifle platoon? What do they do for you as a commander?
1: So I guess I'll kind of speak to that, and it's it's two parts. You know, as a platoon, it, it really ties back to the first question. I think it's given my team the ability to have an influence over a larger area of operations compared to a legacy rifle platoon. We've also seen it increase our ability to provide a wider range of information and intelligence back to the company level. This is not just, hey, we are gathering all this new intelligence and this new information that then terminates at the platoon. You know, it's allowed us to push that up and and I'd say expedite, you know, company level decision making and and really saturate company level decision making with very accurate and timely uh, intelligence. So, you know, that's speaking to it kind of at the platoon level, I'd say as a commander, uh, you know these new assets have, have been critical in mission planning. You know they facilitate a far more in-depth analysis and concurrent action in a time-constrained environment. When utilized properly, it's it's amazing. You know I've got an RO who's collecting key frequencies, coordinating pace plans through the company. My platoon-level intelligence chief is providing most up-to-date enemy situation, threat capabilities, both to myself and to the Marines. My log NCO or my logistics NCO is is, is coordinating the supplies. And gear for my published warno, and you know, to touch on that importantly, what that really does is it allows my senior tactical leaders, my my squad leaders, my gunny to focus on to being just that, you know, to to focus on tactical planning and tactical advisement as opposed to just being uh, you know the beans, bullets, band aids guys as we prep for a mission. So it's really quite incredible to see how much it's freed them up and allowed our mission planning like i mentioned in a time constraint environment to really come out on the back end with a, a far more substantial product for the marines and for my essay as a commander i'd say that you know one of the more notable and enabling changes under the new construct has been the addition of, of four corpsmen to the platoon i know captain Sanderfield touched on this a little bit earlier but uh you know from what i've seen in this workup gone are the days in which a platoon has really the, the access and capability to send up an immediate nine line and receive, uh, you know, an immediate cast back, which is able to move through American owned skies at, at, at any beck and call. I just don't I don't think that's realistic in the next fight. So, you know, tactically, the ability to put a corpsman who is capable of prolonged casualty care with each squad, it's, it's really been invaluable. It provided, you know, the platoon on on many instances in in training, the ability to sustain urgent casualties for, you know, one, sometimes two days until the company could could support evacuation. So that's kind of in the tactical side of the house. I'd say the benefit of these corpsmen, though, it didn't just stop in the field. You know, in garrison, having these organic medical personnel enabled us to perform training at a much more sustained rate. Really, without the need to request or deconflict any kind of outside support through the company, mm. um, and on top of that, you know they're able to train with their squads and to train their squads to a much higher standard of combat casualty care. Most of the Marines in my platoon at this point are capable of giving IVs and and really have been you know called out, if you will, to a higher level than I think maybe we've seen in the past in terms of of you know that immediate tactical casualty care. So it's it's really been quite incredible having those. I you know, I, I think it's something that like Captain Sanderfield said uh, has really made not just the platoon but the company a far more capable force.
0: To continue on the theme of your headquarters, I think one could argue it's almost axiomatic that the larger a headquarters becomes the the greater the cost and I think there there can be downsides of having more marines with more specialties in a headquarters. Have you found it challenging to harness, harmonize their capabilities in a timely way? Have having all of these capabilities made it harder for you to fight the platoon?
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. It definitely uh, has been a challenge from the onset. I'd say, you know, if I really reflect, I can't say there have been any downsides to having the enablers in, in my platoon. You know, when it did occur, I'd say... I owned any lack of synchronization or harmonization, uh, both tactically and garrison. You know, there were instances in which we'd finish a live fire range or, or you know, we would leave a training exercise, you know, and my, my platoon intelligence chief or my log NCO would come up to me and, and be like, hey, you know, I felt underutilized or or maybe I was simply another gun in the fight. And, you know, there were times when I needed them to fill that secondary role but they were few and far between. And I began to realize that I couldn't, I couldn't neglect their primary purpose. And really, I was shooting myself in the foot by doing so. You know, but honestly, I think those were largely growing pains. The, the fact of the matter is that they do bring capabilities that are really only truly realized when they're gainfully employed. I, I, I wouldn't say I found it harder to fight the platoon because of them. They never detracted from the platoon's capabilities. But I would say you know, until I really learned how to task them out and make them work for me, they did often go underutilized and, and and honestly, like I said, I kind of shot myself in the foot. I do think at, at this point in the workup and, and you know, now that we're we're deployed, we've kind of come into our own a little bit. Uh we understand or really I guess they understand how they can work for me and what I expect and I and I understand, you know, how I can best utilize them. So at this point, like I said, it, really early on, some growing pains in terms of underutilization. Uh, but never really detracted from my ability to fight the lieutenants.
0: Devin, if I could ask you similar questions, your company headquarters element is much larger than a, a typical rifle company. Do you agree with the lieutenant? The challenges you've faced, if, if you've faced any up to this point, have been growing pains. You've ironed those out. Uh, are there still things that you're coming to grips with as far as properly utilizing all your assets and making sure that your guys are gainfully employed.
2: Just like Lieutenant Carrero mentioned, and I think we, we discussed it a little bit earlier, it really is understanding what their capabilities are and employing them properly. I'd say that one of the challenges has been when it comes to to planning early on is not, and you've, you see this at the battalion level as well, the growing pains of understanding the, the Planning process, but it took some time to take all these enablers who aren't necessarily taught in the schoolhouse how to embed themselves within an infantry company and do Marine Corps planning process. So it, it, there was a lot of teaching and learning, and thankfully, I had just recently came from the Expeditionary Warfare School, so it was fresh in my mind, and I and I could do a little bit of teaching. But what I found as the as the months went on was. We were just incredibly quick in when it came to planning and planning distributed and removed from the battalion. I mean, my the ability for my intelligence section to conduct IPB uh, is is just fascinating how quickly they can put it together, how quickly we identify uh, requests for information or shortfalls, how quickly we're able to identify across the warfighting functions where we had a resource shortfall or where we needed more information, and then we have some of the assets to to collect some of our own intelligence. They really just came to understanding their capabilities, but I don't think that that's unique. Uh, the, a battalion also goes through the same type of issues, which makes sense because we have the same warfighting function capability uh, at the company level.
1: I think just to, to add on that, I guess kind of a, an additional point, to what I stated previously, I, I'd also say that really a lot of the underutilization came primarily from a gap, I'd say, in my my knowledge as a you know platoon commander. Now flooded with these assets of like what Captain Santerfield said, really just what they were capable of. You know, again, often we'd come off ranges and 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 these enablers would come to me saying that they felt underutilized, and then would explain to me, you know how they could have been utilized or, or assets that they could have brought to the fight. And, you know, quite often I was not even aware that that was the capability that they possess. So I think, you know, when we talk back to kind of like, you know, IOC TBS, it's something that I I would like to see more of, you know, coming into this new construct would be, uh, I guess, more of a familiarization kind of a, an understanding of, of what these assets would bring, maybe you know, integrating more of working with logistics Marines, working with tactical UAS operators, working with intelligence Marines, like just mm-hmm. to have that base of knowledge coming into the fleet, I think would have helped leaps and bounds in terms of those growing pains we've talked about.
0: So I think it's fair to say that for everybody on this call and probably everybody in the unit, the experience in Alpha 1-2 is, has been one of learning adaptation understanding people's capabilities, understanding how to best use those capabilities, learning from peers, learning from your juniors, learning from your seniors, which is, I think, a great thing, a necessary thing for a unit like yours to be successful. So it appears that each rifle squad has two fire teams instead of three. What does this do to your ability to fire and move, fire and maneuver, create dilemmas for the enemy? I'd love to to hear everyone's view on this. I mean, do we think the rifle platoon should go back to three fire teams? Don't three elements give more flexibility than two? What what are what are your thoughts on that?
1: I don't mind uh, taking it right out of the gate, and then uh, I'm I'm very interested. To, uh, Captain Santerfield and I have talked about this a little bit, but I'm interested to hear Gunny Baker's perspective as well. You know, it's it's a topic that's really dominated conversation between me and my squad leaders for the last twelve months. I mean, if I had a, a penny for every time that we asked that question, it, I'd have a lot of pennies. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say it hasn't reduced our ability to fire and move uh, or maneuver or create dilemmas for the enemy. But we really have had to rewrite some of the ways in which we do it. You know, for decades, squads has been operating around and under, you know, really building some procedure around uh, and raising Marines around the three-team construct immediate action drills ambush task organization troll formations etc they're all built around a general three fire team uh you know organization and really that's our bread and butter it's what we're familiar with Uh, you know that's not easily undone the the two-team design has required a lot of repetitions for us of hey try something you know fall short or, or maybe not do it as efficiently as we could have take the feedback from that adjust and try again and, and honestly, we're still learning how to do it effectively. I'd say my squad leaders have done a, a really phenomenal job, and I'm sure you know Gunny Baker shares the sentiment. But of tailoring their teams and adopting the "quote unquote" arms room concept to custom fit their squads to specific tasks, and at times that looks very similar to the three team design. You know, I had a conversation with my squad leaders kind of leading up to this. You know, just for one more one more mill about of the the age old question of of should we have two or should we have three and what they came back to was, hey, oftentimes we go into it as a two fire team design, but based off what the mission requires, sometimes we break it up and it, it does look more like a three fire team design or one team is accomplishing two tasks. Like it's a very fluid relationship, I'd say. I don't know, you know, the, the, really the question of whether or not we should go back to three teams for me is it really a yes or no question that can be answered over one workup or deployment, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, the the two-team squad isn't a bad design. The recon teams use it, various soft units practice it. But then again, we don't share their mission set. I'd say if I had to make a choice tomorrow as to which you know Marine Corps should practice, I'd I'd probably say the three teams just because it's what I'm most familiar with and what I'm most comfortable with. But that doesn't make it the better system or even right for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know I think if we do choose to adopt the two teams permanently, we, we do have to accept that there's going to be a little bit uh, of growth and transition as there probably was when we went to three fire teams. So uh, yeah, I think it's a very complex question. I, I don't really know if there's a yes or no answer given in, in the timeframe that we've, we've been utilizing it. I think Damien, from my perspective, Lieutenant Crow mentioned, we,
2: we talk about this quite a bit. What's interesting to me is there's a hyper focus for sure. And what I would say is when me and Gunny Baker were talking the other day, you know, the rifle squad I led in Afghanistan in 2009 I didn't have 13 guys with three, four man fire teams with the squad leader that just didn't exist. And you rarely found a a full TO squad in those days. So I operate under a two fire team construct in Afghanistan and I I found no issue with with doing it that way. I'd say that if the the Marine Corps wants to give me another sergeant, uh, I'll make a three fire team construct (laughs) tomorrow, you know, It's really about the, the leader. <laughs> I think we're, we're pretty adaptive mm-hmm. for it. in either way. It's just fine. It, it, it's interesting to me. People get hung up on that point a little too
3: much. I totally agree with Captain Centerful. Like I went out in, uh, in Afghanistan. I was in Marjorie with seven Marines and one corpsman, kind of similar to some of our bigger teams. I found it to be um, actually easier to control. And I think about when I need to, you know, have a squad that's far off. You know, I can kind of give them a cover down on two things. But for me, I just find it these. I find it easier. I think it's a little bit better with the two man teams. When I look at some of the exercises we did out in, in Yuma and YPG, when we did like some urban training, just having those uh, those each team's boundings, it was easier to control. And then the fire teams had a little bit more firepower when they go to gain that initial foothold than maybe your three or your four man team would have. Interesting.
0: I'd like to hear everyone give their thoughts on this if, if you would, what advice could you give future platoon commanders who might serve in an IBEX-like unit? And we can start with a lieutenant if that's all right.
1: You know, I'd say as, as cliche as it might sound, go into it with, uh, the understanding that the in state, like we talked about, hasn't changed. The purpose of the Marine infantry remains. It's still to locate, close with and destroy the enemy grounded wholly in maneuver you know, creating dilemmas for the enemy, regardless of the toys, the structure, the enablers, et cetera, that that doesn't change. I'd also say that realize, I guess, if I if I could speak to a platoon commander that was getting ready to assume my role, I'd say realize that having such a large cadre of staff and COs working for you right out the gate brings with it a multitude of opportunity and unique leadership challenges. Honestly, it like most things in this job will and should humble you every day, you know, realize even in the saturation of experience and knowledge that you are more than a figurehead, you still do and must bring value in leading these individuals. So, you know, that was just something I don't think I really expected coming out of the schoolhouse to have so many staff NCOs and to be able really have the, the privilege to be mentored by so, so many staff NCOs. Um, and, you know, finally I'd I'd, tell them, I'd just say, have fun with it, be crafty. You know, the book was written by guys who didn't have a book. So you got to stay grounded in doctrine. You have to read, you know, disaggregated operations is not a new concept, and you can learn a lot of lessons reading through books and pubs from, like, the Vietnam War, for example. There's a lot of the same struggles that that we see today. So, you know, at the end of the day, be willing to engage with your Marines and find new, more efficient ways of doing business while staying grounded in doctrine and, and have fun with it.
3: You know, I, I think it's uh, it's a really interesting time to be in the Marine Corps infantry. I would just say have an open mind when you first come in. You do have a lot of experienced uh leaders. Take their advice, but I would want him to know that he's he's more than capable, right? And that everything, he's in charge of everything. No matter if he has 18 staff and CEOs, you know, 20 sergeants and three gun, he he is the leader and that he has to he has to show that and he has to be in charge. I mean he still could take advice, but at the end of the day, everything is still on the platoon commander. I would also, you know, tell him to make sure that he does understand doctrine, especially, you know, how we fight now and what we're trying to do, just to open up a book to to kind of bridge the gap uh, for it, you know, because the teams don't really have that much experience coming out the schoolhouse, but to bridge that, but they are smart. They're strong. Yeah, just have an open mind, you know, try to get valuable reps to reading PME and just remember that you're in charge no matter what, like you're still, it is still your platoon. And even though you could take advice from guys, you still have to realize that you know the 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 getting the bad lies at your feet
2: i think my point for advice for platoon commanders really applies for for company commanders as well and then and then really all leaders is you need to come into a unit like this a force design company you need to come into it understanding how to how to conduct detailed planning because you're going to have some enablers that you are not Familiar with, and you're going to have some people that are that are capable of doing some things that you may not be familiar with. So you're going to have to get smart on the planning process. And, and I don't necessarily mean you need to understand McPee-Pee, uh the Marine Corps planning process as a platoon commander, but you, you sure do need to understand how to do some some detailed planning across all warfighting functions because you have the enablers to do that. And then again, that that does not just apply. the platoon commanders that applies to our to our company commanders we're really going to have to take a look at if we have a construct like this how we can ensure that not only our resident pme but our non-resident distance learning pme for company commanders or incoming company commanders meets the criteria to teach them how to plan properly with the type of assets and enablers that are generally found at the battalion level Hmm.
0: Gunny Baker, I've got a few questions for you directly. The first is, so you've already had a long career in the Marine Corps. What's it like being a platoon sergeant again? You know, what was your reaction to, to being told, hey, here, here's your, hey, Gunny, you're going to be a platoon sergeant You know, when you, when you checked into the unit?
3: Well, at first I had some reservations. I felt with my experience, a uh, couple with some of the schools I've attended, that would be better suited to serve the battalion in a different capacity or like in another billet. Now, those were my initial feelings, but those uh, feelings faded fairly quickly. Then I came to realize that the structure of objects, a gunnery sergeant was really the right choice that we needed to have.
0: With more mature, better trained, better educated fire team and squad leaders who I'm guessing can conduct training fairly well on their own. How does this affect your position? What are you doing now as a platoon sergeant that you didn't do your first go around and, and what aren't you doing now that you previously done?
3: Yeah, I think the way that we're presented problems and the way that we uh, find solution for those problems require a more experienced platoon sergeant. I mean, uh, we're often disaggregated over large swaths of land with limited communications to hire. Also, there are many critical decisions to be made on the fly that routinely wouldn't be reserved for a, you know, fire team leader or, or a squad leader. And and even so, at the platoon level. But overall, I think we we really work as a team. Uh, we try to minimize our egos to accomplish the mission. Having three staff and CO squad leaders. I give them a leeway to do, to do their business. And, you know, I just sit back and kind of act as oversight to make sure that things are getting done in the in right way. And uh, we also we communicate very well. So there's really no issue. Everybody has input. And like I said before, the final decision lies with the, with the commander.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: What have you learned or found especially interesting serving as a gunny platoon sergeant, which really stood out to you?
3: The most fascinating thing for me is the trust. My platoon would get attached a task, just in reserve for a company. When I look back at some of the experiences my platoon has accomplished these things that previously a company would have done, our training leading up to the support was so unique in our opinion. We took Marines straight from SOI early on in the phase, and we immersed them into complex training evolutions. When I checked in in August of 2022, our company had already completed their first force design exercise. It was an in infiltration with multiple types of insert platforms. My second field op with the company was platoon attacks. I found this strange since it was early on in the training. As we progressed, the mission sets got harder, but the Marines were able to adapt quickly. This was because of the experience we have in each platoon. Like I talked about earlier, key billet holders such as Staff Sergeant Squad leaders and Sergeant Team leaders was immeasurable. We were able to train, teach and mentor the Dream Marines at a faster pace without sacrificing skill. Lastly, I would say our formations are more decisive. If I've watched... My team are true over the training cycle. Most actions happen faster than I have witnessed in my career. Always go back to Afghan Alley out in the when we were doing a training evolution. And the CEO gave them a quick uh, fraggle order. They haven't seen the range. They didn't do any range walk, So they come over there and they get the order. And I sit back and I watch my, my squad go get the order. The staff sergeant's getting it over the radio. He's with his two team leaders. As he's getting information, he's feeding it down to his assistant squad leader, the corporal. The Corporal then flies his UAS, and he's already starting a, a route planning and a route selection because he has grid to the enemy, and he's looking with the UAS. So he, sends, he spends about 10 to 15 minutes gathering his thoughts. They get up, the squad moves out. They find the route. They get up there to do a leader's recon. Uh, they have 60-millimeter mortars attached. They have a machine gun, the squad. They do a quick leader's recon. And they come back down. They, they pass the, the plan to the squad. And everything after that, it was just a blur. I watched a team go up, they set a base of fire, they get the mortars going. One team bounced to the next cover and concealed position. That team comes around and I'm just like, I'm like, man, that, that was just so fast. These guys came in with a plan within 20 minutes and executed within the hour. They never got to see the range, but they had all their ducks on up in a row. And that's not really, it was like, this like this thing could be really powerful. Uh, it, it was just so fast. It was, just so, it was really just beautiful to watch.
0: That's awesome. Gunny, what advice would you give to future Gunny platoon sergeants?
3: I would just say be humble. Keep an open mind and then study. It, it's a lot to learn. See so you know what I'm saying? Like the planning process is very robust and um, more is expected of you. Even though you're a Gunny platoon sergeant, like they expect more out of a gun on, mm-hmm. on every different level, whether it be something administratively, whether it be tactically, you're still a gunnery sergeant and, and people expect way more of you as they should. Like every, like a, Company commander said, like Lieutenant uh, Carrero said, it's just learning how to employ the assets the right way. Having that talent, that talent management, and then getting people to get the most out of them and what they bring to the table. I think that's been the most challenging thing because I've never really worked with it. Like, how do I employ my, you know, the UAS of my platoon? You know what I mean? I have this uh, EW asset. Like, what what can this guy really bring to the table, and what we're really trying to accomplish with him? Hmm. Uh, I think those are, have that that has been the hardest thing I've had to deal with so far.
0: So gentlemen, one thing I find concerning about IBEX is the data collection being done on the current crop of staff and COs within the company and below units. Many of these people have significant combat experience from deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. Assuming we don't see any major conflicts break out in the next few years with the United States involved, the staff and COs in a future IBX-like unit, especially the Staff Sergeant Squad leaders will likely have significantly less experience, perhaps no combat experience at all. What are your thoughts on this?
2: I, I think it's a it's a valid concern. Anytime we have periods of peacetime, we lose combat experience within within all ranks across all ranks, and something we've really grown accustomed to I think over the last two decades of of conflict in the Middle East. I think it's important to note um, you know the majority of our staff NCOs, our staff sergeants, particularly the majority of them in the company are actually not combat veterans.
0: Interesting,
2: uh, but they're still highly trained and highly capable infantry leaders that I'd be proud to serve with in combat, but have not actually served um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. I actually found that interesting as well. Once once I arrived and kind of looked into it, but there's there's some other similar you know concerns out there when it comes to the data collection piece of of IBEX. There there tends to be a perception that all of the sergeants and and the staff sergeants have already served in these billets previously, as in like the staff sergeants have already been rifle squad leaders, so they will naturally perform better at them the second time around. And and I'll admit, I had these same concerns uh, early on. However, what I found was over half of our staff sergeant squad leaders have never been a rifle squad leader before. Wow. And that's because they're they're in fact machine gunners or mortarmen. So while they yes, they have led infantry units previously. This is in fact their first time leading an infantry rifle squad within a platoon. So like my two top performing squad leaders in the company, the 0331, 0341 machine mm-hmm. gunners and mortarmen have never, never in fact led a rifle squad before so i really think you know the the success again is less to do with the rank necessarily but with the maturity and experience that comes with just years of service and the completion of multiple duties uh, the multiple schools uh, that have increased the maturity much like the commandant mentioned he's trying to get after uh, in his planning guidance.
0: Hmm. many marine infantry small unit leaders have long desired organic drones People like Lieutenant Colonel Scott Cuomo and others have publicly and strongly advocated for infantry units with organic armed drones and small UAS. Your company has both an armed drone section called an organic precision fires infantry section and a small UAS section. Could you tell us about these sections? What's it been like operating them? How have you used them so far in your exercises and training?
2: We've actually recently done some training with Lieutenant Colonel Cuomo and his his RXR team, the recon counter recon team and team of pros. They're definitely, you know, working alongside us on the forefront of force design. I, I think Colonel Cuomo's advocacy for the use of, of small UAS, tactical UAS is, is spot on. You know, we we've experienced substantial benefit from the use of our company level UAS as well as our OPFI section. In each one of our force design exercises, the company is operated at substantial distances from the rest of the battalion. So while they attempt to provide the support where they can, having the capability to conduct reconnaissance organically just allows us to feed our own intelligence cycle as well as our fires cycle. In reference to our our UAS section, I mean, we're talking actual 72XX VMU operators that we have. In the company trained and qualified to fly Group One, Two, and Three UAS. So that gives us the ability to have persistent long range ISR to support the unit in the collection of intelligence, to support our maneuver elements, as well as the ability to, to just prosecute targets within the company's area of operations. And we have significant small UAS at the squad and platoon level as well, in many cases operated by our our O3s. And in in some ways, it's actually been more beneficial than our our longer range assets because it's allowed the the rifle squads that are disaggregated from the platoon and company to utilize these assets to do objective area reconnaissance uh, before action's on, to conduct route reconnaissance to ensure a route is trafficable, clear of enemy forces before uh, they unmask the force. And the squad and platoon level UAS has also been great at feeding the company intelligent and targeting cycles. Uh, we've used UAS during every force design exercise and with the best example really being executed out, out at Yuma, Arizona. And I'll, I'll kind of give you a, a quick example. We were out supporting WTI. We're in the Yuma Proving Grounds. The company was executing a company level air assault raid into a village surrounded by the mountains. And our our insert LZ was a train feature away. We were attempting to guard against audible compromise by the adversary forces in the town. This was a force on force type of exercise. Unfortunately, the route into the LZ allowed the enemy to have advanced warning of our insert and quickly began moving forces into position to, to ambush the company on its approach. But luckily, you know, quickly upon insert, we had multiple UAS platforms airborne, not not only just company assets over the objective area, but squads had quadcopters out almost immediately in front of their position conducting route reconnaissance. And what this allowed the platoon to do was quickly identify that that enemy force moving on the enemy ridgeline. They altered their route and they end up making offensive action against this enemy force and just destroyed them in their position. Hmm. And I bring that up because had we not had this UAS capability at the squad and company level, had we been relying upon battalion or higher assets to conduct the same function, we either may not have gotten the information at all or we would have gotten it too late and we would have walked a significant portion of our of our unit our combat power and I think we would have suffered some significant loss of life. In relation to OPFI Our loitering munitions, these are really going to change the game going forward. You know, this provides loitering beyond line of sight precision strike capability at the company level. So these types of systems, when you work in conjunction and in combination with our tactical UAS, this provides the capability to employ hunter-killer teams, to rapidly engage enemy forces outside the range of their direct and indirect fire weapon systems, so truly an awesome and new capability at the rifle company level that traditionally only has 60 millimeter mortars as a an organic fire support agency. But that being said, you know, there are limitations to this as well. Not, this hasn't been a complete success story. You know, we really got to figure out our battery situation and battery consumption and sustainment. We need systems that can, that can fly longer, that can fly further, and that are light enough to pack in our rucksack. And it's A lot of it's been encouraging, some of the things that the, the Marine Corps and the, the military wholesale investing in, but some of the systems, are just they're just too big, and they're, they're difficult to move around. They require vehicles. They require you to be in a static position, so we've had a lot more success with the things that we can pack out in our rucksack and we can put out while on the move. I think the biggest struggle we've had, though, you know, when we talk UAS and our loading missions, anything that we can fly is not been the Marines and their capability to use or fly them. I mean, it's not even really been the batteries. The struggle has been our outdated training areas, our outdated range restrictions and approach to the use of these systems, which have, have limits their use. Mm-hmm. And I think most of this is, is just due to folks having a, a lack of familiarity and knowledge uh, on these systems. And we got to get smart on it because they're not going anywhere. I think unmanned systems, loitering munitions—they're—they're going to continue to proliferate, and the Marine Corps is investing heavily in them for good reason. So I think we need—you know—from our experience, we're going to need every every base commander, installation commander, every government employee that is responsible for facilitating training to find ways to ensure that their their policies their approaches, their, their SOPs uh, support the use of these systems. Cause sadly, what we've, what we found is they don't all do that currently.
0: Mm. There's some controversy surrounding the arms room concept. Before we get into that controversy, could you describe what the arms room is and how it differs from the current rifle company construct?
2: So the idea behind the arms room concept is one in which a, a, Company, platoon, squad level, you know, the units have the ability to choose weapon systems to bring on a mission that allows them to accomplish the task assigned. So in other words, they can task organize their equipment, their table of equipment can change to match shooters to enable the accomplishment of their mission. And this differs from a traditional rifle company, because while a traditional rifle company has all their medium machine guns located in their in their weapons platoon, we have Marines trained and equipped on medium machine guns, on recoilless rifles, on various HE assets within every squad, which enables the commanders, which enables the, the squad leaders to, to pick and choose the weapon systems that they need to accomplish uh, the tasks they've been assigned.
1: I just say when we talk about kind of going back to like the ability of a platoon, you know, via its squads to influence a larger area, you know, I, I think the, the arms room concept, the ability to put that more mature leader with a little bit more experience and understanding in a position in which they can then choose to take things gear people, you know, that allow them to meet commander's intent really I, in my opinion, brings to light exactly how effective the construct can be. You know, again, when we talk about staff sergeant squad leaders or, or really, you know, the capability of a staff sergeant squad leader, if you put them in a position where they are armed only with, you know, what we would have given to a conventional squad, I, I think you really, you know, cut them at the knees, so to speak. So it's been, at least from what I've seen, very successful, Take, you know, giving that squad leader, hey, you have organically – you know, a machine gun, a recoilless rifle. Now, you know, we can have a conversation on, you know, whether or not you need it and and ultimately, you know, circle back around. But at the end of the day, just giving them that capability allows it, you know, and, and you could really tie that back, I guess, to tactical UAS as well. But like giving them that capability allows them, I think, to be faster in their decision-making. It, it allows them to, you know, produce results rather than being tied back uh, to more of a centralized command.
0: For the arms room to work and stop me if I'm getting this wrong, but this requires your infantry Marines to have necessary and sufficient time and training with all of the company's TO weapons. And this means having enough money for rounds and such and time on ranges and and other things, If, if that is correct, if I'm describing it correctly, are you getting enough of everything you need? If not, how are you compensating? If you are getting enough, is there anything else weapons wise you'd want more of?
2: Sure, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, for this concept, for the concept of the arms room to work, of which I'm a huge advocate of um, due to the lessons learned over the last 12 months, but it does require a huge investment of both time and ammunition. And before I really kind of address those, I just wanna you know touch on for the, the viewers why I'm such a, a believer in the concept. And I think over the last 12 months, we've conducted five force design exercises in addition to our platoon, our company platoon level training. And these have all been multi-day operations where we are have severe disaggregation of units. And what the arms room has provided is, is flexibility. When, when the situation changes on the ground and the enemy's not quite where we thought they would be realistic, when... When we have to dynamically retask units, I don't have the ability to take my machine gun section from one side of the of the battle space and move them over to another, and, and that applies to the platoons as well when the squads are disaggregated. The arms room concept allows flexibility within the unit to have the proficiency in a variety of weapon systems that allows the platoon commander, it allows the squad leader to equip appropriately. Uh, to accomplish their task assigned, and just the flexibility and capabilities uh, to adapt when things inevitably change. But no, you know we currently don't have the ammo allocations that allow us to qualify and sustain proficiency for every Marine in the company on the medium machine gun, the recoilless rifle, the squad grenade launcher. This is certainly a resource shortfall that we're going to have to address if, if for this concept to work and something that um, we've had, we've kind of struggled with over the last 12 months. Are there any
0: modifications or alternatives to the arms room that you've considered you've played around with? And if so, could you describe these?
2: I think just by the nature of not having, again, the ammunition to, to qualify every Marine, to meet sustainment intervals for every Marine, we've had to take kind of a hybrid approach. We still have the idea of an arms room concept because we believe that we need to have the flexibility across the unit for a squad to pull weapon systems as needed uh, based on the planning process. So what we've kind of done is squads and platoons identify folks that have a natural propensity to fire the machine gun effectively. And they have two, three, four Marines in the squad who are capable of doing that across each fire team. And then same thing with the recoilless rifle, with the HE assets that we have, the precision fire sniper rifles, essentially, that we have access to, building that capability, at least with a handful of Marines, so that the squad leader has the ability to pull those weapons as necessary to accomplish a mission. So that has been a modification we've made, largely just due to a lack of some of the resources, the ammunition particularly, to get after that same issue. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: Logistics in force design 2030 is a hot button topic right now, and I'm curious to learn more about the logistics cell within the company headquarters. What does this cell do? What have you learned about its capabilities and limitations through your experimentation, your training? And finally, where would you like to see it go from here?
2: I think logistics is a hot button issue because it's just hard. Sustaining the force is already hard, and then doing it with dispersed units against a capable adversary just make it even more difficult. And to be honest with you, we haven't cracked the nut when it comes to dispersed logistics. The introduction to the company level logistics element, I think, is a step in the right direction because it really serves two purposes at the company level. I think, one, it incorporates a specifically trained team of subject matter experts at the company platoon level that help plan and advise commanders on how to logistically sustain the force throughout either a singular mission or a, a prolonged operation. And then two, and this is probably more important, and it was touched on earlier, but it frees up the platoon sergeant and my operations chief to serve as the senior infantry advisor to the commander. And I think sadly, over the last few decades, we've relegated our, our platoon sergeants and our company gunnies to be the logistics guy who you know counts in MREs and, and measures water in the water bowl. And we don't need them doing that. We need that guy to be, who is the most experienced infantryman in the company. I need him to be advising the commander, myself and the platoon commanders on, on infantry tactics. So having that logistics element, I think allows for this, but bottom line is while we still have this team of professionals serving in the logistics element, we're going to have to evolve their training that they receive coming into it to ensure that we're leveraging their abilities appropriately. We need to ensure that we embed some of these logistics NCOs into the infantry earlier uh, and more often, so that they understand how we operate. You know, where's our culminating point as a unit, and we can ensure that we can we can expand that in terms of logistics. But you know, unfortunately, right now we just have a shortfall in foundational training across the board when it comes to logistics.
0: Speaking about foundational training, I wanted to talk about the infantry Marine course. So the schools of infantry have instituted a new entry-level infantry course, IMC. Could you talk about the quality of the Marines you've received from this course? I mean, how do they compare to the Marines from the so-called legacy basic infantry course? Where do the
2: IMC Marines
0: excel? Just like to get your
2: thoughts on that. I'll touch on this very quickly and then I'll hand off to Gunny Baker because he has the most experience with the IMC Marines. But I think the new IMC training is definitely a step in the right direction and it provides an improved foundation for the Marines over what they currently, you know, the current legacy ITB course. But it's still entry level training, it's still an entry level course. I get a lot of questions about IMC as if these Marines are going to come out of this entry-level course and be as capable as a team leader or a squad leader, and they're just not. It's a foundational entry-level course, and while they certainly have a great foundation in entry-level tactics, they still need good leaders, they still need uh, mentorship, and they still need additional advanced-level schooling uh, once they get to the fleet.
3: Yeah, you know, so I'll echo what Captain Sandefur said. Um, the IMC Marines and the legacy Marines that I have, they they perform at the same level, basically. In comparison, I think some of the IMC Marines I have, they were like a little bit less mentally and physically um, tough. They like that, they like that discipline. And as training progressed, though, I think all Marines performed on the same level as your average Marine with similar time of service. And all in all, I think more time is needed for the junior Marine to refine their basic infantry skills to a higher level.
0: I've heard some critics say of the IBX that in its its current form, it's trying to replicate a Ranger Battalion with a portion of the gear and none, or comparatively little of the same training that Ranger Battalion would get. I know this is a general statement, but does it reflect any truth? I mean, what would you say to to critics in, in response to that?
2: Yeah, it's an in- interesting question. Um, I'm not so sure about this statement, mostly because I'm just unfamiliar with how a Ranger Battalion trains. Uh, but I will say this, I think, I think far too many people are hyper-focused on the equipment side of IBEX and force design. And while the the capabilities of the new equipment are certainly promising, I think the experiment is really about the people. It's about human capital investment that is required to operate this complex equipment, uh, to fight against a determined and capable adversary in an environment that's com degraded and forces are distributed much more than they ever have before. This is why we got to change the status quo, I think, of the infrastructure. We need more mature and experienced Marines filling our small unit leader billets, whether that's a staff sergeant leading a squad or a sergeant leading a team, or whether it's you know going back to a sergeant leading a squad and a corporal leading a team, we still need more mature and experienced Marines, and we're going to get that through time, we're going to get that through experiences, and we're going to get that through schooling. So we got to invest in the infantry force, the enlisted force particularly, to ensure we're keeping the most capable Marines around and that we continue honing their skills through, like I mentioned, uh, schooling and education. I think that's going to be the key to success in the future, not necessarily, you know, the next gadget.
0: Devin and Gunny Baker, this question's for you. Both of you have done combat deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan. How do you think the current Alpha 1-2 would have operated in places like that? And, and more generally, how might an IBEX company conduct something like counterinsurgency operations?
3: I think IBEX allows more flexibility uh, in a counterinsurgency, just about ability to disperse, cover more ground. And as a unit with so much experience, I would say we would probably you know, we, we would do things better than we did in, in the past. Uh, that's, that's hard to say. But uh, furthermore, with, with our current suite of equipment, we just have an obvious advantage with the ISR platforms, the EW assets, and the fires assets like Switchblade at the company level. We we would just be more, we would just be better. You know, we we will be able to do a little bit more farther apart.
2: I think I'll say, you know, as much as it pains me to say it, I, I have no doubt that the squads within within my company are better and would be better than I was when I led a squad in Afghanistan. I think it's a no-brainer. The level of maturity, the experience, and the enablers at the platoon and squad level have been fantastic and would have been the force multiplier in both Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: What surprised you most about the company with respect to the new kinds of equipment you're using or, or have experimented with?
2: I think what surprised me the most was how difficult some of the equipment was to use during training. And I don't mean difficulty of the Marines to figure out how to use it, because right? this generation of Marines are extremely smart, uh, particularly when it comes to technology. They pick things up and they learn things very quickly. I think what surprised me the most was some of the risk aversion to the use of the equipment. Uh, an example, you know, our aviation community is going to have to get a whole lot more comfortable deconflicting airspace with unmanned aircraft. And We saw some of these complications uh, in planning out at WTI where if an aircraft came into the zone, they wanted all small UAS to, you know, to come down. And I just don't think that's going to be tenable going forward. I think currently we have a, a mindset that the aviation community owns the sky and that we have to de-conflict with them. And I think going forward as these systems proliferate, It may turn that around and it may be, you know, the air side deconflicting with ground a little bit more. But like I mentioned earlier, I think everybody's got to get more comfortable with utilizing these systems. We can all deconflict geographically. We can deconflict by time and space to ensure that we we can all have a a piece of the battlefield and ensure that we're all working uh, collaboratively towards towards the accomplishment of a goal.
0: Alpha Company and 1-2 in general have a strong relationship with McWill, the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. Could you describe this relationship and talk about how McWill has supported you?
2: We have a positive relationship as a battalion with McWill. They attend and help design, to some extent, all of our major exercises, our force design exercises. They're present when we do our, our orders. They've sat down and evaluated our planning process. They listen to our debriefs. So they've been complete professionals and, and partners, generally interested in what we do. I, I have been, you know, particularly surprised that that we haven't had more people asking questions to our squad leaders, our platoon commanders, and, and our platoon sergeants. I think this is probably the first time we've had the opportunity really to sit down and share our experiences over the last 12 months, particularly with this structure. So I, I hope that maybe this entices some people to reach out. I think we have a lot of lessons learned. We've done a lot of things right. We've done a lot of things wrong. We've made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I think we have some something to offer the force as we look at what the next IBEX looks like or how we refine a force design to ensure that it meets the challenges in the future.
0: Speaking about lessons learned, could you talk about, some of the training exercises, experiments, you've, you've touched on them here and there in the conversation so far, but what have you learned? And, and I'd be happy to hear from everybody, what's surprised you most? What, if anything, have you found you know frustrating or disappointing?
3: The biggest thing I've learned is that we don't have a suppression in the traditional sense. Like we don't have, like, you know, when you go to range 400, you got 81, so you're gonna give you a, you know, 10, 15 minute duration suppression. Because we, we normally, you know, we only able to employ what we can carry out. So usually when we take mortars or any other type of fire asset, it needs to be prompt and it needs to be accurate right then. And I think that was like one of the biggest adjustments, you know, when I came, when I came to one, two, to having to adjust. Because like, even I have three machine guns in my platoon, I don't have an infinite amount of rounds. Like, you got to get on target, you got to get them down, and we have to, you know, close that gap fast we just don't have you know the ability to walk around with all these different rounds.
2: No, I think but I think that's all. a great point, Gunny. Um you know Lieutenant Crow mentioned earlier of we, we've really had a unique opportunity to conduct some some fantastic training that have been extremely challenging both physically and mentally. We've been on every climb place. We've we've waded through the swamps of Camp Lejeune, we've been in the snowy mountains of West Virginia. We've been in the desert of Yuma, Arizona, and 29 Palms, and we've you know, climbed around San Clemente Island. So each of these have required the, the company to operate at even greater distances each time, and have it, and it required us to move great distances on foot, carrying the logistics that we need to execute, much like, like Gunny alluded to. I think one of the biggest takeaways has been that as we distribute further and as we adjust our emissions use to prevent enemy detection, you know, the understanding and tenets of maneuver warfare and our warfighting philosophy are as important today as they've ever been. You know, I went days at times without talking to the platoons. And when I was able to reach them, it was I only had the time to transmit a new task and purpose. And my platoon commanders are required on the front end to, to really have a good grasp of what my intent was and then my boss's intent. And they needed to have a full understanding of the mission, and they needed to know how I think and how I would want them to make decisions in various situations. Um, I remember one exercise in particular. I missed a comm window with a platoon, and when I was finally able to reach them, I was only able to transmit one message before I lost comm. And in that message, I was able to dynamically retask and provide a new link up grid. And this link up grid was some eight, 10 kilometers further than what we had originally anticipated. And we we leveraged some movement in the period of darkness, largely to gain the advantage over the adversary force that we were facing. And I was nervous as I came upon, finally came upon the link up grid nine hours later. I was nervous, but as soon as I arrived, you know, young second Lieutenant is sitting there with his unit concealed in a security posture. And he had done all this uh, solely off task and purpose. And Gunny alluded to it as well, when it came to firepower and mortars and the use of, of HE, I think that just comes back to focusing combat power at the decisive point. You know, we don't have the ability when we're carrying ammunition to, Fire endless you know number of rounds for suppression to to gain a breach it has to be focused and it has to be focused at the decisive point on the enemy to be successful
1: I think kind of speaking to captain Sanderfield's point too you know at the at the platoon level, what it really showed me was you know with this new structure and these new enablers and and really the maturity of the forces is our ability to disaggregate and reaggregate across a wide area you know i I think about the same field op in in west virginia at times i was disaggregating my squad leaders within a hundred square kilometer box to have them then re-aggregate at the critical point to create that dilemma for the enemy so i think just what really coming out of all of these exercises and for me it was consistent across the board was just really how capable as a as a a platoon and, and and you know like Captain Sanderfield mentioned as a company, you know, but I felt it as a platoon commander, the ability to disaggregate and maneuver on the enemy in, in a wider geographical box, you know, I, I think we have taken away some of the limitations and, and we are able to take a little bit more risk, like Captain Sanderfield's talked about. And and in a lot of ways it's it's made us more lethal, I think. And in the same way, you know, that there was often a calm degraded or calm, limited environment between the company commander and platoon commanders, there were times when my squad leaders were operating purely off of commander's intent and task. And, you know, we would go, you know, 24, 48 hours without talking before re-engaging, and, and almost every single time was pleased to find that, that the mission was being accomplished, even if not under the the initial plan, you know what I mean? We had those key leaders in place that were able to make decisions in absence of direct leadership or tasking.
0: It's interesting the references you guys have made to commander's intent. I think the requirement for trust that, you know, you've given a, a new purpose, a new task, and you expect the Marines to be in the grid square that you need them to be in. And there's a lot that goes into that before ever setting foot in the battle space. I think a lot of this comes back to PME. Devin, I know you're a big proponent of PME. You've purchased numerous war games for the company. You've pushed the use of decision forcing cases, professional reading, and and so on. Could you talk about your thoughts on PME, the PME program you've implemented, and how does this all fit into what you've been describing into the success of the company and making things happen in the absence of reliable communication?
2: Yeah, of course. I think PME is the responsibility of the commander. You are responsible for the development of your Marines and sailors, bottom line. And I think far too many of our, of our leaders, far too many of our commanders, they farm off the PME responsibility to our schoolhouses. And we, we have to know how our Marines think about problems and how they tend to solve problems. And they need to know how we think. So yes, I'm a big proponent of PME. I'm a big proponent of tactile decision games, DFCs, battle studies, war gaming, and reading. And there's there's kind of a running joke in the battalion, or really in the company, amongst the Marines that you know Captain Sample is always going to ask you what you're reading. And I do because I'm a strong believer that you only gain experience by doing, or by reading, or hearing about other people doing. And we you know, we all have experience gaps, and we got to do everything we can to close those. You know, little by little. And one easy way to get after it is just the implementation of TDGs into the training schedule, the forcing of the use of war games to understand how people think and just to force them to have to make a decision right or wrong and then reflect and think about it later.
0: Gunny Baker and Lieutenant Carrero, could you give your perspective on the role of of PME in the company? What effects do you think? these decision games, the DFCs, and TDGs are, are having on the Marines? And where would you like to see things go from here as far as PME goes?
3: I think PME is huge in our company. Um, Marines at all levels benefit from the mental repetitions of a DFC, a TDG, or a war game. It's another way to hone our skills, develop critical thinkers, and gain experience with minimal impact on resources. I think that's one of the big things that I, I love about it, that like you don't have to get a training area. You don't have to do anything. I could do it in my office. The Marines could do it in their room. We basically do it anywhere and it, and it travels well. Our Marines are learning to analyze problems and making plans that will keep them multiple steps ahead of the enemy. I think for me, I set out during one of our training evolutions, our readiness evaluation. I observed my Marines, they were coming up with different plans and they, they all had the ambush mindset and we were fighting a mechanized enemy. And um, we actually put their plans to use and their plans were, you know, they were able to, you know, take out vehicles to harass the enemy to keep them off guard. Uh, and it was just a wonderful thing to see. And, uh, you know, our junior Marines have more of an understanding of what the enemy is trying to do, and they stay proactive versus reactive. And it also teaches them the second and third order effects of action and inaction. And I think that's proven uh, monumental to our success in the, in the, in the company.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, Gutty Baker, Captain Centerfield really summarized it perfectly. When you, you know, when you talk about the effects of doing decision-forcing cases, tactical decision games, It really allows a multitude of things. You know, you allow or you begin to see, you know, your subordinate leaders thinking process, what makes them tick, how do they think? What are they inclined to do? Kind of initially unjaded by your opinion or your, you know, your thoughts. And then on the back end, it allows you to then synchronize your thoughts and your actions and your perspectives and really just synchronize in my case the platoon leadership, the squad leadership. As a whole, you you begin to, like Captain Centerfield said, close that gap. I think it's it's invaluable. And when you really look at the amount of time it takes to do even the simplest of TDGs or, or the simplest of DFCs, the question arises, like, why would you not be doing them? If the benefit is so great and the cost is so little, I mean, you know, self-admittedly, I I, I wish I, I hadn't done them more in this workup when I really look back on it. But simply put, the effects of stretching out your leaders' minds, of of causing them to think, of of overloading them with decisions and seeing how they react, and then synchronizing your, you know, your intent and your will. All of these things have shown time and time again, you know, their benefit. And again, when you when you put that in comparison, the time it takes to even sit down, you know, for five or 10 minutes with your Marines and say, hey, you know this is this and this is this what do you do what do you think where would you go what would you do why would you do it you know you begin to you begin to work their brains out cause them to think and even if you know you don't have a long drawn out academic conversation in the moment you know those marines take that conversation home they take those those lessons home and they think on it you know and and very often i've done tdgs with my guys in which you know some of the most silent guys in the room then come back to me the next week and they're like you know sir i've been thinking about this and I don't know, you know, everybody was kind of going, I don't think that's right. Or, you know, I I think we should have done this or why would we do this when we could have done this? And, and you know, that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. Those are the conversations they have with me. And, and what I can only hope is that that type of conversation is being, you know, propagated and, and spread throughout the platoon. I, I think it, you know, that's what takes good teams and turns them into great teams. It's just that constant red selling war game outside of war type mindset. So, yeah, again, I think, like these gentlemen said, the benefits far outweigh the cost. No reason you shouldn't be doing them.
0: <laughs> I'm just so encouraged to hear all of you speak about decision games, decision making in these terms. I, I you know, I hope listeners and leaders of other units take note and follow your lead. This is just great stuff. It's my understanding that you haven't been able to realize or make full use of the technology and capabilities you have in the company, because these would require your Marines, all of your Marines, if I'm not mistaken, to have secret or top secret clearances. If if that is accurate, could you speak to
2: this challenge? Sure. I want to be careful on how I answer this, but but yes. I think as we continue to push new capabilities and equipment down to the company level, we're going to have to re-examine which billets rate a particular clearance. Um, It hasn't necessarily hindered our ability to use technology, uh, largely because I have Marine operators that have the appropriate clearances, but it has minimized the commander's ability to fully understand the capabilities of some of the equipment and to be integral, I think, in some of the decision-making process in the employment of those technologies. So, hasn't hindered it, but we're going to have to reexamine. I think, especially as this these assets and capabilities get pushed lower and lower.
0: Could you talk about some of the failures of the company, some of the shortfalls? W- where do you see the, the IBEX construct not living up to its expectations? Are there any concrete examples you can give?
2: I think we've had a, a ton of, of failures and, and shortfalls, and largely just because our, our training has been fairly difficult. As I look back in hindsight. I think that probably our biggest shortfall as a unit has been that we we maybe haven't been ambitious enough. I think the unit like like ours is tremendously capable. The amount of experience with the squads and the platoons is is really crazy. I mean, I think, you know, maybe we could have pushed the limits a little bit more, accepted a little bit more risk, and and hopefully something I wish to get after, I think, in the in the months ahead. I think we also have a lot of range and installation limitations, as I mentioned before, that just prevent us from using some of the equipment and capabilities to its full potential, primarily in, in relation to our, our tactical UAS and, and our loitering munitions. But the other piece is logistics, and we, we've failed here time and time again, where we either don't plan appropriately to have the, the amount of logistics to sustain the force for the duration, or we haven't thought about the problem you know, completely. We're gonna to have to really, you know, look forward in, in future iterations of this, how we test the idea of 21st century logistics, of of foraging, of how we're gonna purchase off the local population so that we can ensure we're utilizing natural existing infrastructure. We're just gonna to have to put some more time and energy into this because it's just been one of the shortfalls of our of our experiment is we just haven't we haven't cracked this nut yet.
0: Gentlemen, where do you think IBEX should go from here? What would the next iteration IBEX 2.0 look like to you?
2: I think for me, I'm not quite sure what the next iteration looks like. And I'm sure someone you know much smarter and more experienced than me have a plan for it. Uh, one thing I'd say is that I hope it doesn't turn into a complete focus on, on the things, on the gadgets, on the equipment. And I, I hope that we can take the lessons learned from Victor One Two about the value of, of having experienced mature people in the right positions at the right time to make decisions. So I'm not sure what what the future iteration looks like. I sure hope it's not equipment focused. And I hope we can continue to understand the investment in, in human capital.
0: How has the war in Ukraine influenced the the training and experiments of Alpha One Two?
2: You know, I think if Ukraine and the, the training that, that Alpha Company 1-2 have done over the last year have taught us anything is that tactical vehicles are easy to find. And when, when they're easy to find, they're easy to kill. And I think during our, our most recent combat readiness exercise, our company was, was foot mobile. We were able to decimate a mechanized adversary force in the backwoods of North Carolina. You know, vehicles provide a tremendous mobility and speed on roads and trails but they give off a lot of heat. They're largely stuck to ground lines of communication. And with the company that has a robust organic ISR capability that has loitering beyond line of sight munitions, that has recoilless rifles and javelin missiles, they're just, they're easy to pick off. So while we continue to to train to face any adversary force in any region, uh, like the commandant said, vehicles are easy to kill, and I think we're going to have to look at uh, some foot-mobile forces and making forces that are more physically capable of carrying the weight over distance going forward.
0: Ukraine obviously looms large in the headlines. Are there other conflicts that you guys are looking at as you move ahead with IBEX?
2: I think by by nature of our where we're currently sit now in Okinawa, our, our focus is on the Pacific. And uh, the commandant is, you know, said this for since he, his planning guidance came out of, of our focus should be on our adversary forces in in the Pacific. But I'd say we, we train every day to face any force in any region. By no means are we tailoring our our training or tailoring our force towards one particular adversary. But we're certainly interested on what's going on in the Pacific region.
0: For each of you, if there's one thing you'd want our audience to take away from what you're doing with Alpha-1-2, what would it be?
1: If I could just leave one thing for really anybody coming in, but I'll speak directly to you know, incoming platoon commanders into this kind of force design or, or something similar is that the focus needs to remain as it has on the development of individual Marines and, and sailors within your platoon. You're going to be saturated with a lot of New things, technology, enablers, toys, but at the end of the day, you know, the in state of the Marine infantry still remains. And I think we need to keep that our primary focus as we continue to kind of develop the force
3: in the future. Yeah, the only thing I would say is I think it's evident that a more mature force is a more lethal force. I mean, I think we just need to have an open mind about, one, how do we train? You know, how, how do we develop these younger leaders to, to take over a more significant role? And I think that requires an open mind, whether it be staff sergeant squad leaders and sergeant team leaders or that senior sergeant, that we just maturity is, is going to equal greater success for us.
2: Yeah, I think I'll just reinforce
3: Gunny's comments
2: of we just have to we have to change. I think we have to do things differently. We've seen it on the ground having. More mature leaders with more experience equals a better product. There's no doubt about it. So we have to do something different. We have to, we have to change. We need to readdress our our schooling and our enlisted infantry schooling to ensure we're preparing all ranks for the problems ahead. And it's been a it's been a great experiment, but you know, I don't want this to sound like we've done everything right. We've made a whole lot of mistakes along the way, for sure.
0: Gentlemen, this has been a highly stimulating and and interesting conversation. I've enjoyed it tremendously. I've learned a ton about what you guys are doing. I think I've got a better understanding of the concepts and purpose behind IBEX. And I'll ask you, as I ask all my guests, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners?
2: I think my, my parting shot is, you know, going off my last comment of, we didn't do everything right. We don't have this all figured out but we do have we do have a whole lot of lessons learned experience so we welcome anyone uh, that wants to reach out shoot us an email shoot us a note whether you agree with us or not i think we all have thick skin you know if you disagree i'd like to hear those line of thoughts as well i think iron sharpens iron steel sharpens steel kind of idea so i'd love to hear everybody's thoughts and uh, and i'm more than willing to set apart some time for me and for my staff to to talk anybody who's interested about our lessons learned Uh, over the last 12 months.
0: Gentlemen, thank you again. I really look forward to sharing this with the Warfighting Society, and I hope it generates some critical discussion and and people do reach out to you. And if there's anything I can do to facilitate people reaching out, I'll, I'll certainly do that. And thanks again.
2: Yeah, of course.